The title of this morning's sermon is The Parables of the Mustard Seed and Leaven. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel, verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 21. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please. Luke 13, 18 through 21. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was leavened. You can be seated. Father, we thank you for these verses. I don't remember uh, how many years it's been since I've preached so much about the kingdom of God in one sermon. We recognize that's what Jesus came preaching during his earthly ministry, and uh, he brought the kingdom from heaven to earth, and so how important these parables are. Uh, Give us understanding of the kingdom that Christ brought and and understanding of these verses and what uh, these two parables illustrate. I thank you for them, Lord. I found them particularly challenging studying them this week, but, but feel confident about the understanding that you've um, given to me, and it seems given to other commentary, commentators about, about what they mean, and I pray that we could be encouraged by them, the growth of your kingdom, uh, what that means for us, why it should be an encouragement to us, despite the other things that we might see going on around us. I pray that you help each of us to stay focused on what you want to say to us, and even more would ask for your Holy Spirit to minister to us, to open our hearts, make them receptive to the seeds that you would plant, we think about any unbelievers who might be joining us this morning, whether in person or tuning in, and pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, and for all the believers who will be hearing your word. We ask that it will continue that sanctifying work that only your word can do, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, I have to tell you that these were some of the most difficult verses that I have uh, studied in a long time. The reason is that if you look at commentaries, you're going to see they can strongly disagree with each other. There's essentially two interpretations of these parables, and uh, they're basically opposites. So there's not really a middle ground that you can can settle on. Essentially, Jesus is saying something uh, positive and encouraging about the kingdom of God and, by extension, the church, or he is saying something uh, negative about the kingdom of God and the church, or at at least after it grows. And so, I had begun the week, I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday, my sermons are about thirty-five to 4,000 words, and I came home on Tuesday, I believe, and I had about 5,000 words on my notes, which is common because you've got to strip away all the extra material uh, and try to just present the best stuff Sunday morning, let's say, and all, almost all 5,000 of those words I had to remove when I realized that I was probably interpreting the parables the wrong way and had to start all over again. And so I do feel confident in this interpretation. Uh, the, the same one that some of you might have in your Bibles as well, or perhaps heard preached before. First, let me tell you the other interpretation that I disagree with, the one that I initially held to on Monday and Tuesday, that the kingdom of God, and by extension the church, it grows and reaches such a size that then an amount of corruption is introduced into the church, or into the king, well, into the kingdom of God, and then by extension into the church. So the first interpretation is that the kingdom of God grows, or the church grows, and then reaches a size that uh, corruption or even sin would be introduced into it. And from those two parables, what are the two things you see that could easily represent the sin or corruption that would be introduced into the kingdom of God or introduced into the church? Leaven? That's an obvious one. What's the other one? 
It's birds, actually. Birds, although not as commonly as leaven, are presented fairly negatively in Scripture. Here's a few examples. The parable of the sower. The birds come, they snatch away the seed. Matthew 13, 4, Jesus sowed. Some seeds fell along the path. The birds came, devoured them. Jesus interprets the parable. Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of God, excuse me, hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And so here you've got the birds associated with the devil himself, which obviously makes birds look pretty bad. When Babylon is destroyed during the tribulation, it becomes filled with demons and birds. Revelation 18.2, he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And so seeing birds living with demons also obviously makes them look pretty bad. D.A. Carson, very respected and well-known scholar and commentator, he said, a close study of birds as symbols in the Old Testament and especially in the literature of later Judaism shows that birds regularly symbolize evil and even demons or Satan. And so when there's a parable about birds coming into the kingdom of God, it's going to look like a parable about corruption or sin coming into the church. Leaven, obviously not any better. Uh, one of the strongest pictures are types of sin. Leaven is a fungus that grows in bread dough, just like sin can grow in a person's life. You can never completely remove leaven from dough after it's been introduced into it, just like sin can never be completely removed from our lives on this side of heaven. You think about that struggle that Paul described as a very mature Christian at the end of Romans 7. The end of Romans 7, essentially, that safe haven for all of us as we are um, fighting against sin for the rest of our lives. So sin is never completely removed from our lives, uh, even though we are forgiven for it. Leaven puffs up bread, like sin puffs up or leads to pride. A small amount of leaven can spread through a batch of dough, just like a small amount of sin can spread through what? Pretty much anything, a church, a marriage, uh, a life, a family. Think about Achan and the way his sin affected his whole family. Think about Paul's letter to the Corinthians and how he warned that this man's sin was going to spread through the church. Think of the uh, marriages who have suffered or families because of just one person's sin. So when Jesus preaches two parables about birds and leaven coming into the kingdom of God, you can understand why some commentators think that this is prophesying of sin or corruption coming into the church. And so perhaps you hear that and you say, well, that, you know, that can't be right, Pastor Scott, because we know that there's no sin or corruption in the church. Well, we know there is because most of Paul's letters were corrective in nature. Well, he had an amount of encouragement. There were plenty of rebukes that he had. Uh, you think about Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He had something critical to say to uh, five of the seven churches, and there were two churches that he didn't have one single good thing to say to them. So, uh, and he called them churches. So definitely an amount of sin or corruption that had been introduced into those fellowships. So we're going to look at the parables in detail in a moment, but I want to tell you why I came to the uh, conclusion that I did, or the interpretation that I did, that the parables instead are describing the growth and the spreading influence of the church. And I'll give you four reasons that I hold to this interpretation. First, 
The second parable, it's not discussing leaven being introduced into the kingdom of God. Instead, it's actually comparing the kingdom of God itself with what? With leaven, which is a huge difference between saying leaven comes into a church versus saying the church is like leaven. Look in verse 20. Again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven. Now, if leaven is a picture or type of sin in these verses, then I don't see how it could be compared with the kingdom of God. And so instead, the idea is the kingdom of God is going to spread throughout the world like what? The kingdom of God will spread like what? Yeah, like leaven does. Second, when we look, we have a a blessing associated with interpreting passages in the Gospels that we don't have with other uh, locations in the Bible except perhaps Kings and Chronicles because they also have parallel accounts. So when you're looking at, what I mean by that is when you're looking at something in the Gospels that you find challenging uh, to interpret, uh, perhaps there are multiple interpretations you could conclude, you have the benefit of being able to look at the parallel account of that in the other Gospels, unless it's an isolated account that's only in one Gospel. But this account, for example, is in the other two synoptic Gospels. So we can read these parables here in, in Luke, and we can also look at them in Matthew and Mark. And many times, if you're having trouble interpreting an account in one of the Gospels, to look at the context for it in the other Gospels can help you come to a better interpretation. And similarly, if you're looking at something in Chronicles or Kings to look at the parallel accounts between those books can also be helpful. In this situation, when Jesus preached these parables in Matthew and Mark, in the context, he's repeatedly describing the kingdom as a very uh, positive and pervading influence versus talking about sin and corruption coming into the church. And so I would actually say in all three Gospels, the context argues that Jesus is saying something positive about the spread of the kingdom of God. And if you keep that in mind and look here at the context in Luke's Gospel, this is my third reason I hold to this interpretation. Think of the account that we concluded last week. Verse 18 begins with the words, he said, therefore. Whenever you see therefore, what do you have to do? Yeah, you have to ask what is therefore, which causes you to look back at the previous verses of the previous account, which tells us that these parables flow from the previous account of Jesus healing the woman who was disabled or had the, had the crippling spirit. Now, look at the end of that account, verse 17. As he said these things, after he had healed this woman, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. Now, this is basically about two things. So so to be perfectly clear with you, the end of the previous account, which these two parables flow from, is about two things. First, Jesus being vindicated over his enemies who are opposing him, and second, the people rejoicing over what he did. So in essence, the account concludes with the kingdom of God looking better or worse? Better. Growing, people rejoicing, celebrating, Christ having victory over his enemies, and these parables flow from that context. Fourth, we want to harmonize the Old and the New Testaments, and so this, this is important. I hope you can receive some uh, tools for your uh, interpretation of the Bible in the future uh, this morning during this sermon. And here's one that I would highly encourage you to use as often as possible. You want the Old and New Testaments to harmonize. 
there's a compatibility between them. It's not to say things don't change or that we're under the same covenant that the individuals under the old covenant were under. That's not my point. But my point is that they, there is a compatibility. It is, they are part of one book together that God wrote. So if you're ever looking at an account in the New Testament, and let's say you see two possible interpretations for that passage in the New Testament, you're always going to choose that interpretation that harmonizes with the Old Testament if there is, in fact, some Old Testament verses that prefigure or foreshadow those New Testament verses. And similarly, if you're in the Old Testament and you're looking at an account and you're struggling to determine the correct interpretation for some verses or for a passage, if there is a New Testament parallel that those Old Testament verses are looking forward to, you're always going to choose the interpretation for those Old Testament verses that harmonize with or are compatible with that New Testament account. And this is, and of all the reasons that I mentioned, this is, the, this is the strongest reason, or pretty much if I only had this reason, I still would have held to this uh, interpretation that I do for these parables, because there are two passages in the Old Testament at least, there might be more, that I think clearly prefigure or foreshadow these parables and allow us to interpret them correctly. And I want to briefly look at those two passages in the Old Testament. The first one is in Ezekiel. So you can mark your spot in Luke, and you can go ahead and you can turn to Ezekiel. Two passages that are going to help us interpret um, these parables. Also with us going through Luke's gospel on Sunday mornings and seeming, um, we're probably going to be in it a lot longer. <laughs> it's nice to be able to look at some verses in the Old Testament here. So here's the context. <clears throat> this is a messianic prophecy, which means, by messianic prophecy, I mean it's a prophecy about Christ and his kingdom. Look in Ezekiel 17, verse 22. I'm going to kind of pause. We're going to break this up in chunks. So it makes sense. Ezekiel 17, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig. We don't say sprig very often, do we? Does anyone else's Bible have a different word than sprig? Huh? Shoot? Kind of think branch. Branch, twig. And this sprig or shoot or branch or is Jesus. Think of the familiar title of Jesus being a shoot from the root of Jesse, David's father. And so it says the Lord's going to take himself a sprig from the top, from the lofty top of the cedar. Now, this cedar is the royal line of David, which Jesus is what? Comes from, or you could say, to keep the same language, plucked from. He's plucked from that royal line or this noble cedar. And then God says, I'm going to set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs. I will take a tender one. And again, this tender one is Jesus. And I myself will plant it, or we could almost think plant him, plant Christ, on a high and lofty mountain. And more than likely, the high and lofty mountain that's in view here is the most famous mount in all of Scripture, Mount Zion, or what we know of as Jerusalem. Now remember, Ezekiel, who's he preaching to? Who is he preaching to? He was, in, he was where, well, let me ask this, where was Ezekiel for his ministry? He was in exile in Babylon. He's the other exilic prophet along with Daniel. And so Ezekiel is preaching to the Jews who were in exile in Babylon. And how were those Jews feeling at the time? Disheartened. Pretty much God's done with us. Something that they never imagined happened, something that they never imagined happening happened. 
They thought that they would never be removed from their land. They also thought that their temple would never, God would never allow their temple to be destroyed. I'm not sure at this point if the temple had been destroyed, but we do know that at least God had allowed the Jews to be taken out of the land because these were those Jews, some of the Jews taken out of the land. Ezekiel is prophesying to them. They believe that God is finished with them, that essentially their sin has been so bad that they have broken the covenant that God made with them, which wouldn't really be possible because it's an unconditional covenant. No matter how bad they were, God would be faithful to keep the promise that he made to his people. So God's not going to allow that to happen for them to be cast off, and the evidence is in these verses, or let me say it like this, the evidence that God is not done with the Jews is in these verses because there's a Messiah that is going to come from them. God is going to pluck a branch from them. He's going to plant that branch. He's going to establish it on a high and lofty mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, which is where the Messiah or Jesus is going to reign as king. Now, this prophecy, it wasn't fulfilled when the Jews returned from their exile back to the promised land. Instead of this is looking for Jesus had his earthly ministry around Jerusalem. But in Luke's gospel, as we repeatedly read that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, he's making his way to Jerusalem not to rule and reign, despite what the triumphal entry looked like. He's making his way to Jerusalem for what? Yeah, to die, to be crucified. It isn't until his second coming that his kingdom will be physically established on the earth and he will reign from Jerusalem or from Mount Zion over the whole world. Now, with that in mind, look at verse 23. On the mountain height of Israel, or in Jerusalem, will I plant it, plant the Messiah, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And then notice this, and under it, under this noble cedar, it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Now, you might say the wrong answer, and that's okay, but what do you think these birds represent? What do you think these birds represent? They represent people. They represent the Gentiles. They represent the nations of the world coming under the authority or under the umbrella of the Messiah's kingdom. And in a sense, if they're submitted to him under his protection, he's producing fruit that feeds them. He serves as an, as an umbrella of protection and authority over them for these nations to come under, let's say, his branches. Verse 24, all the trees of the field... And in this sense, we can already tell that a tree is a metaphor for a nation. And so when he says all the trees of the field, he's saying all the nations of the field or all the nations of the world shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree or the high nation. I will make high the low tree or exalt the humble tree or nation. Dry up the green tree, make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it. So considering that all these trees represent nations with Christ's tree or noble tree or noble cedar representing the greatest nation that these other nations become part of or take shade under, this is saying that those nations that are submitted to Christ will be exalted and those nations that are proud and reject Christ, embrace their sin, don't submit to him, will instead be punished. So you have this tree though, that grows large enough that the birds can come and nest in the branches, and these birds represent the nations of the world. And so hopefully you can see how this, these verses here would look forward to the parable in Luke's gospel and help us come to the correct interpretation. Go and turn to the right one book to Daniel chapter 4 for the second Old Testament passage that informs us.
4. So Daniel is the other exilic prophet, or he was the other prophet in exile to the Jews, brought in there with his, with his friends. And he has a similarity with Joseph in that he interprets dreams, and he interprets dreams for foreign kings. For Joseph, it was interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, and for uh, Daniel, it was, in this context, interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So Nebuchadnezzar <clears throat> has this dream of this tree. Look in verse 10 with me. I'll read this quickly. Here's Nebuchadnezzar's dream, chapter 4, verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew, and it became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under, and then notice this, the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was, fle- was fed from it. And so, again, we see a tree that grows large enough that the birds, or I would say nations of the earth, come and find themselves in its branches. One of the, what's, what, is, what do we know about Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's day, let's say prior to the Medes and Persians conquering it? <laughs> It was the superpower of the day. No nation approached the greatness of of Babylon, at least in Nebuchadnezzar's day. And so what did Babylon do? Why was it compared to these these animals that just go and devour other animals in the other dream that he interpreted? Because it's just, it's a wild, vicious nation that devours or consumes all these other nations and brings these nations under its branches. And so Babylon is this tree that the other nations become part of or birds come and nest in the branches as either the Babylonians conquer them or as they just choose to submit and make themselves, find themselves as part of that nation. So with that in mind, look at the interpretation in verse 20. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, verse 21, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, Daniel says, it is you, O king, and your kingdom by extension, who have grown and become strong. You are the tree. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. It was his nation that spread and filled the earth and consumed all the other nations. They became part or nested in the branches of this tree. Because Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom were evil, what's going to happen to this tree? Which if we read further, we would see. Yeah, it's going to be cut down. What's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? A very unique punishment that brings him to repentance. You'll see, we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday. Greatly humbled, forced to walk around for that season like an animal, missed the, the dew of the, the morning dew on him and his nails and hair growing too long and, and essentially lost his mind uh, that was the punishment that brought him to repentance, and then he ended up being um, exalted after that, given really one of the most glorious declarations or confessions in, in all of Scripture from this pagan king. Now, with this in mind, turn back to Luke. With this idea of trees, birds being nations, trees representing a kingdom or kingdoms, And I'm convinced when Jesus preached these parables, 
his listeners familiar with the Old Testament would look back on these verses in Daniel and Ezekiel and understand them the way that we can now understand them with our background. Verse 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds, or I would say nations of the air, made nests in its branches. And this brings us to lesson one. The parable of the mustard seed illustrates the outward growth of the kingdom of God. The parable of the mustard seed illustrates the outward growth of the kingdom of God. So let's just kind of talk. Let's make sure we understand this. How does the kingdom of God begin? It begins small, yeah. What what does the mustard seed make you think of? Something very small. The kingdom of God begins very small, but is going to grow to something very large like a tree. It is going to also be a source of sustenance and protection for all people that uh, nest in its branches, let's say, or all who seek its blessing, like birds would find when nesting in the branches. The small nature of the mustard seed, it also looks to the very humble beginnings of the king of this kingdom. How did this king have his beginnings? We're talking manger, right? We're talking no-name places. What places are associated with the king of this kingdom, his beginnings that look small like a mustard seed? We're talking Bethlehem. We're talking growing up in Nazareth. We're talking ministering in and around Galilee, generally wrecked. Now, that's, here's sort of the problem, because we, we spend this amount of time in the church, and we don't know the Middle East. We don't know the connotations associated with many of these places that ha- we have almost a reverence for them because they're associated with the Lord that we love, right? So we hear Bethlehem, and we're like, oh, Bethlehem. You know, we're like Nazareth, oh, Nazareth, Galilee, oh, Galilee. People are Galilee, and they're like backwoods. They're like hicks. They're uneducated, foolish fishermen. The, the, the educated people are down toward Jerusalem. So when you want to talk about humble beginnings, the humble beginnings of a mustard seed, you don't get much humbler than Bethlehem, Nazareth, Galilee. He's a man. He had no rank. Nobody looked at Joseph and said, this Joseph is going to have a legal son who will become king. Nobody looked at Mary and thought that she would give birth to the Messiah, to the Son of God. No rank, without means, he lived in what was considered this backwater region of the world, Nazareth and Galilee. The men that he chose, were they of any prominence or significance? No, definitely not. His life and death did not, at that time, catch the world's attention any more than A mustard seed that's lying on the ground by the side of the road is going to catch anyone's attention. This was God's work, though. And so, what seemed very inconsequential at first has spread throughout the world. The history of the church, here's what's interesting. Jesus preached this, but we can actually look at church. Jesus preached this and people had to believe it because he was writing history or preaching history in advance. But we can look back on church history or human history and see the truth of this parable, that it has the kingdom of God and by extension the church experienced explosive growth through the centuries. I read that within 40 years of Christ's death, the gospel had reached 
all the great centers of the Roman world. Now, understand me, when I say the gospel reached all the great centers of the Roman world, I didn't say the gospel reached all the great centers of the Roman world and everyone there became Christians. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that the, the gospel reached those places and many out-of-the-way places. And you see the trajectory of the gospel in the book of Acts when the gospel moves where? The concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You've got Philip preaching the gospel to the Ethiopian, and then the gospel going back to Ethiopia, and you just follow these different ways. You don't get to see what happens in Ethiopia. You just get to see the gospel going there, going in all these different directions like spokes on a wheel, really fulfilling what Jesus preached here. Since that time, the kingdom, the gospel has been spreading, gaining people from every country, even when it's not as, as thrilling or as encouraging as we might like to hear, although we can still be comforted that God is sovereign. But when IEM, just this uh, past week, a phone call from uh, Rick Imhole, who works with IEM, getting to talk a little about the ministry, and they come and they tell you that there's only 4% of the people in India who have come to Christ. And that seems terribly discouraging until you understand that it's twice as many people as it was not that many years ago when it was only 2% other people. But the fact is the gospel reaching parts of the world that it has never reached before. Think of the language of this verse, Revelation 7, 9. I looked, behold, a great multitude no one could number from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages standing. And that's the key part. People from every nation, tribe, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, which means every single Gentile nation, language, you know, tongue, tribe, people, group, you name it, will be represented in the kingdom of God. It doesn't say a majority, but there will be some representatives because the gospel will have reached them. Listen to these verses that find their complete fulfillment in the, script, in the future, but are still prophesying of the kingdom of God spreading through the whole earth. And so, and so you'll read these verses, and I just want you to understand what's in view here when you encounter these and you say, well, what, when is this talking about that we read about the kingdom of God reaching the ends of the earth? This looks forward to the millennial kingdom, Christ's return, ruling and reigning, and his glory spreading out to all, all the edges. Psalm seventy-two, nineteen: blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Daniel two thirty-five. the other probably more well-known dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the statue. The iron, clay, bronze, silver, gold of the statue were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind just carried, and those all represent nations, and all those nations were shattered and became like chaff. What happens to chaff? It's just gone. It's, it's, it, uh, it describes these nations essentially being destroyed. And what was it that destroyed or conquered this statue? and sent all those materials or all those nations to become chaff blown away. What was it? It was a rock, which represents the kingdom of Christ. And then it says, so that not a trace of those nations could be found, but the stone, referring to Christ's kingdom, that struck the image, it became a great, again, mountain and filled the whole earth. That's Christ's kingdom filling the earth. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And here's what's interesting, and I don't know that this is exactly the case or not, but if the birds 
do represent the Gentile nations of the world, which is what I believe, coming into the kingdom, then in a sense, it almost partially agrees with the first, the alternative interpretation that it is sin coming into the kingdom of God or the tree because uh, tradition or in scripture, when Gentiles are discussed, they're discussed as what? Sinful or corrupt. Gentiles are never applauded for their godliness or righteousness. And so in a sense, if the birds represent the Gentile nations of the world, when they come into the tree, you do have sin or corruption coming into the church, but being saved, being sanctified, and delivered from that sin. Despite persecution, despite repeated attempts to stamp out God's kingdom, it has flourished. Nothing could stop it. Nobody can stop the spread of it. There's an interesting speech from a Pharisee named Gamaliel early in the book of Acts, and here's what happened. So earlier I said, Jesus dies, no, no real notice, no real attention. It kind of what, what did the religious leaders think, the ones who despised Jesus when he died? What did they think was going to happen with, let's, for lack of a better word, say, the religion that he brought? It's, it's stamped out. It's done. It's over with. What happened instead? It explodes so much so that they become alarmed by what they're seeing as the apostles are spreading the gospel and this kingdom is experiencing explosive growth. So, some apostles are arrested. An angel miraculously uh, releases these apostles and tells them to go preach in the temple, not going to go well with the religious leaders. So the apostles who are miraculously released from prison by an angel go to the temple to then preach the gospel. This greatly upsets the religious leaders. And what were the religious leaders entertaining doing with the apostles then? Executing them. They were entertaining executing them. And this prominent Pharisee named Gamaliel stands up and he gives a pretty remarkable speech. Listen to what he says. Acts 5.34, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel. He's a teacher of the law and he's held in honor by all the people. He stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He says, I don't want them to hear this, basically. Put them outside while I talk to you for a moment. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Be careful. And here's the point he's going to make. I'll tell you so it, it might, uh, you might understand it a little easier when I read it. He says, think twice before you execute them. And he encourages them to do so by recounting two people we're not familiar with who seemed very prominent, who seemed to be leading very prominent works. And what happened to those two men? Their, their works, I don't want to say ministries, but their works just fizzled out, came to nothing. But if their ministries were to continue or were to thrive, then that would be evidence that God was behind them. And so with that in mind, listen to what... So either way, Gamaliel is essentially saying this, you don't need to do anything with the apostles because either God is not behind them and they will fizzle out, or God is with them, in which case what? You don't want to do anything with them, right? Either God's with them and then you don't want to lay a hand on them, or God is not with them, and you don't have to do anything, it'll fizzle out on its own. So, with that in mind, Gamaliel says, before these days, Theodos, or the- Theodos, if that's, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but this is one of those prominent men who fizzled out. Theodos, he rose up, he claimed to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, 
and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, not Judas that betrayed Jesus, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. He drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, the one dealing with these apostles, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or, it, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God himself. And so he says, don't touch them. You don't need to do anything with them. Either God will deal with them if they're false, or God will be behind them and bless them, and you'll oppose God if he's with them. And so the fact that Christ's kingdom continued to spread revealed what? That God was with them, that he's working through the ministry of these apostles. So despite all the opposition that they faced, despite all of the, the criticism, despite all the terrible things they were having to go through, it was evidence that God was blessing them, or God's blessing was on their work, that they continued. Now look at the second parable, Luke 13, verse 20. Again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Now, let me just read it one more time. Verse 21, the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Now, if we take our minds, kind of, we almost have to like, our, our minds are so solidified with leaven being a metaphor for sin, we almost have to rip our minds away from that and view leaven differently. So do not associate leaven with sin for a moment. It is microscopic in size. There's only a little bit of it that's put in dough, but given time, what happens? It multiplies, it spreads through the whole batch. Now, similarly, the kingdom of God starts small, yet given time, it multiplies and spreads through the whole world. Leaven moves quietly through the dough. You can't see it working. I'm not making a joke, but you could sit there and stare at bread. You know sparks fly or anything like that. You can't see the leaven doing anything, but it's working because you can see the effects, which is the dough rising. Now, similarly, can you see the kingdom of God itself? No, you can't. It is an invisible kingdom that we enter by faith. It is spreading quietly through the world. We cannot see the kingdom of God working. And what I mean by that is you can't see the walls or boundaries of it. And you can't say, oh, we can see the wall, the boundary of the kingdom of God spreading further in India. You can't, but you can see, in a sense, the dough rising, or you can see the effects of it as men's hearts are changed. Both parables are beautiful pictures of the kingdom of God spreading, which kind of begs the, begs the question. Because especially in the Proverbs, a proverb will make the same point twice. It's very common for God to uh, repeat, make the same point with different words. So are these two parables making the exact same point? They're not. They are making the same point that the kingdom of God will spread, but there's a major difference. The first parable is about the outward growth of the kingdom. Birds fly from outside into and become part of the tree, but the second parable is about the inside out the kingdom spreading from the inside out. The leaven works from inside the dough outward. And this brings us to lesson two. 
The parable of the leaven illustrates the inward growth of the kingdom of God. The inward growth of the kingdom of God. So leaven makes dough rise from within, which pictures the way that the gospel changes people inwardly. It changes our hearts, and then it works its way through our actions, or there is an inward change that then affects outward behavior. If you have been uh, changed by the gospel, what changed first, your actions or your heart, the outward or the inward? The inward changes, and that directs the change outwardly, and you deal with this with your children. Most of your parent, most of our parenting deals with outward behavior, you see, and you're trying to see outward behavior change. But if we really want to see behavior change with our children, we need to focus on inward change, preaching the gospel to them versus just moral reform or outward, outward change. And think of it like this. When the reign of Christ is introduced into human hearts from without, so it comes from out, inside, once it's entered, it exerts this wholesome, transforming influence. It leads us in the process of sanctification that God has for us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, all of us with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ. And I love this phrase, from one degree of glory to another. From one degree of glory to another. Degrees aren't real far apart. And I like that. It makes me feel a little encouraged when I feel like I haven't grown as much as I'd like. Uh, That we're talking degrees here. (laughs) We're not talking huge leaps. And so it's one degree to another. There's a little bit of change happening in our lives regularly. Sometimes it's like staring at the the dough. You can't even see the changes. You're watching it, but there is growth taking place in the dough and in our lives. The other day, and I'm pretty certain it was in my study with the Mormons, they they asked me what the gospel is. And I was thrilled to, to have an opportunity to answer this because we do not, and I, I don't say this to, uh, to criticize them, I say it more as a, as a fact than anything else, we do not view the gospel different or the same. We have a different view of it. Uh, it is, they, their view of the gospel is not the same as ours. And so they asked me about my view of the gospel, and I said that it's the means by which sinful, wretched people like ourselves who have been separated from a perfectly holy and just God can be because uh, separated from him because of our sin can be reconciled to him which is different than their view which is essentially we're good people we were spirit children we just need to return to god and he's kind of waiting for that but we're not really very bad we do enough good works to be good people very different from our view of the gospel or i said well a, a shorter more concise definition of the gospel the gospel is the means by which sinful people get to heaven or the gospel is the means by which sinful men are justified or declared righteous. But the gospel is not just the means of our justification. In other words, it's not like we just get saved and we're done with the gospel. The gospel is also the means of our sanctification. We are saved by the gospel. We are justified, declared righteous in a moment. But then over the rest of our lives, we are sanctified by the gospel as we are transformed from one degree to another by the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of our thoughts and our actions are to come into line with Christ's thoughts and actions. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we take every thought captive 
to obey Christ. A very convicting thought for me that when I have uh, sinful thoughts, is this a thought Christ would have or is this a thought that Christ would want me to have? And if the answer is no, then I'm responsible with taking this thought captive and removing it because it's not a thought Christ would have and therefore it's not a, a thought that Christ would want me to have. And so this happens as the gospel spreads through our lives just like leaven spreads through dough. As people are sanctified and the gospel changes hearts, we can see the godly influence in countless ways throughout the world and throughout human history. And I believe anyone who wants to be honest about human history or about church history has to acknowledge the dramatic positive change that the gospel has had on parts of the world when it has been introduced. Anyone who wants to be honest must acknowledge the positive effect the gospel has had on parts of the world when it has been introduced, and people must also acknowledge that those places that are furthest from the gospel are also those places that experience the most wickedness, the most violence, the greatest mistreatment of women, the greatest mistreatment of children. As our nation falls further away from the Lord uh, or further away from the gospel, we see worse treatment of children, the the increased um, number of babies that are murdered, But if we compare the treatment of people, whether especially you can look at slaves, women, children, underprivileged or impoverished people, when the gospel is introduced, that's when they are shown a level of care and concern that they are not shown otherwise. It is only the gospel being introduced that can really produce any positive changes on a society or culture. And this is the main difference between the gospel, let's say the true gospel, so that I can contrast it with the social gospel. And I I think this is real important for all of us to understand. The true gospel is going to deal with men's hearts. The social gospel is going to deal with what? Circumstances, society, behavior, actions. Trying to improve society by focusing on things like poverty, sickness, job conditions. The world will just be a better place if we raise the minimum wage, if we just give people more money, if we just, if we just, if we just, if we just make these positive changes to society, the world will be better. In other words, to make it real clear, the social gospel focuses on the outward. The true gospel focuses on the inward and then works outwardly as men's hearts versus the outside, the circumstances in society being changed as men's hearts are changed, and then the world changes. I want to conclude with one short, important lesson, lesson three. Nobody is physically born in the kingdom of God. Lesson three, nobody is physically born in the kingdom of God. So speaking of the kingdom of God, we are not born citizens of it, We are not born into it, and that's why we must be what? Yeah, born again. That's why we must be reborn. That's why we must experience a new birth. John 3, 3, most assuredly I say to you, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. We experience this new birth, a spiritual birth, where we become part of God's kingdom And this happens through repentance and faith in Christ. This happens, and you could say this, it happens when the king of this kingdom becomes our king. We become part of the kingdom of God when we say, 
I do not want to live for myself any longer. I do not want to be the king or ruler of my life any longer. I want Christ to be my king. I want to live for him. I want to surrender my life to him. I want to live in submission to him. And when that's our desire, although obviously none of us do it perfectly, but when we say I want to repent from my sins, repent of my sins, turn from them to Christ, I want him to be my king, we become part of that kingdom. We're born again, we're delivered from the kingdom that we were born into, which is what? Yeah, the kingdom, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom that's ruled by the other father. Remember in John 8, Jesus says the devil is your father. Generally, we think biblically of fathers and we don't think of the devil as a father. But in John 8, Jesus said that the devil is a father to the children that he has, the people who are born into his kingdom. When we're brought into the kingdom of light, Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Philip Riken said, if you wish to come into God's kingdom, you must ask God to rescue you from the dominion of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of the son that he loves. You must renounce your deal with the devil and you must swear allegiance to Christ the king. Now, if you've never done that before, or you have any questions about anything that I discussed in the sermon, or if there are any ways that I can pray for you, I'd consider it a privilege to have the opportunity to speak to you after service. I'll be up front. Father, we thank you for the kingdom that Christ preached, that he brought with him from heaven to earth in his first coming. We look forward to his return and that kingdom being physically established on the earth, spiritually brought, um, spiritually entered into during the church age, but we look forward to when it will be physically established on the earth at his second coming. I pray for anyone who hasn't yet entered that kingdom um, by faith. I think of the conversation Jesus had with that man where he said that he was close. He said you were close to the kingdom, but the man had not entered yet. And how terrible would it be if there were, if there were any here or anyone um, you know, watching online or tuning in that were close to the kingdom but had not pressed into it, Lord. And so we pray for them, that they would become citizens of that kingdom with you as their king. We thank you for the kingdom that we can be part of, that grants us eternal life. We thank you for what Christ has done for us. And whatever spheres you introduce us into this coming week, Lord, I pray we could bring the kingdom with us, that we could share the gospel with others, give us opportunities. I know for myself, I don't share the gospel as, as uh, well or as frequently as I should. And so give us opportunities for that, Lord, to see your kingdom spread in the spheres you have us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.